Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's guest has sparked an international debate by revealing the mind hacks Facebook, Apple, Google, and Instagram use to get you and your children hooked on their products. In Offline, he delivers an eye-opening research-based journey into the world of tech giants, smartphones, social engineering, and subconscious manipulation. This provocative work shows you how digital devices change individuals and communities for better and for worse. A must-read if you or your kids use smartphones or tablets and spend time browsing social networks, playing online games, or even just browsing sites with news and entertainment. Learn how to recognize mind hacks and avoid the potentially disastrous side effects of digital pollution. Unplug from the matrix and learn digital habits that work for you. We welcome author of Offline, Free Your Mind from Smartphone and Social Media Stress, Soren Kenner. Welcome to the show. Pleased to be here. It's great to have you on the show. I thought we would start by talking about how technology has impacted us mentally. And a good way to start would be the startling realization how technology has impacted us physically over the past 20 years, where we now walk differently than we did 20 years ago. The smartphone gate. Think about 20 years ago, watching people walking down the street, the upright posture, you know, looking around them. Look at the same thing today, you know, four out of five are hunched over, looking at the phone that they're holding in front of them, not really very cognizant of what's around them. But I pulled a line here that's really important, I felt. Our global adoption of digital technology happened in an extraordinarily short span of time, such that it has summarily outpaced our ability to absorb it on a cultural level as well as a neurological one. And you highlight that in the book to show the impact of what technology has done on us has not actually been dispersed across society yet. We don't know how it's impacted us. In a sense, you can think of this as the world's largest social experiment. You have a technology that's arisen over the last, say, 10 to 15 years that has massive impact on how we think, probably has a lot of impact on our perception. And then what we've done is just say, well, hey, everybody have one and absolutely no thought for are there side effects, are there stuff that you should be aware of? Just to the extent of how many smartphones are out there, in 2008, Apple introduced their first iPhone. That's just a little more than 10 years ago, and now there are four to five billion smartphone users. And by 2020, you know, in another year, people, analysts think that there will be probably six to seven billion users. That's pretty much all of the world's population. It's amazing. And we spend so much time there. I, have, You know, in the Apple device now, it has how much time you've spent on your phone today. I'm always embarrassed by how much I get, because you don't realize, you're just checking in the whole time. And you share a condition that you and your co-author of the book, Imran Rashid, talk about called DFRAG. Digital Fragmentation Syndrome. Basically, it's that there's a very, very large amount of information that gets pushed at you in small chunks, and you have a very hard time orientating yourself in terms of what of this do you want to take in, what don't you want to take in. Most people just operate on autopilot. So what you take in is just what's shot at you, how you habitually tend to use technology. And that's not necessarily a good idea because it actually stresses out ability to cogitate. It also has some pretty serious impact on stress levels and on perception and on social togetherness. We're going to dive into how 
technology has impacted our minds later. The book is peppered with studies and research as well. But you start by giving us an overview of the global tech industry and what you call a tsunami of technological transformation brought on by the internet. I think this is a good place to start because this is where it all began. I'd say most people probably don't realize how large companies like Apple or Google or Facebook or Amazon actually are. To give you an example, the economy of Apple, the market cap of more than a trillion dollars, if you look at the GDP of countries that would make Apple the 15th largest economy on the planet out of 199 countries. So when you have this competition between companies like that aimed at capturing your attention and getting as much of your time on their screens or on their product, it's not a friendly competition. It's a competition over amounts of money that are unprecedented. Regardless of whether you are a smartphone manufacturer or you're a provider of a service like Facebook or Google, the game is about getting you to spend as much time as possible on the device or the service and then reselling your attention to advertisers who in turn will try to push their products at you. And it's a precarious balance because, you know, what are the things in the equation here? It's how many users you have, it's how much attention time the individual user have on it, and it's how much money these companies can extract from advertisers. What has happened over the past four or five years is that the amount of users out there have started to taper off. We now have a user base that is so large that the growth in users are getting slower. Also, if you look at how much sales advertisers are making, they're not going to pay more for advertising than you're capable of making sales on the other end that repays for it. At the end of the day, the, the individual consumer, he's the target that is all about getting you to spend more and more and more time and putting more and more and more of your attention into this because that's the only way growth of all of these things can continue to happen. This is one of the reasons I reached out to you, Soren, because the book covers what is being done to us, how we're being manipulated. But one thing that always always comes up for me is I do this show as a show of passion. So I, I carve out time to make this show happen. It's not my day job. And people always go, how do you have time? And this is one of the reasons I have time, because I don't get drawn into it. I do a little bit, like we all do. What I love about you do in the book is you show us how we're being manipulated, how we're being drawn in, but also then give us solutions of how to attack it. But one interesting thing you said there about the global platforms is when they do get to saturation point, when Facebook has recruited most of the people on the world to the platform in some way, then it becomes a case of, okay, well, growth has stagnated. How do we get them to spend more time on it? And I thought a really interesting quote that brings this to life was one that you share in the book from Netflix founder and CEO Reed Hastings when he said, Netflix is not competing with Amazon or YouTube for more users. It's competing with the human need for sleep. And that brings it to life for me. In a knowledge economy where we use our minds more than we do our physique, in, like we did in the past, to put bread on the table, essentially, if we're trying to be more efficient and more focused, etc., and in a world where AI and automation is growing at an exponential rate, we need to be very, very focused and very, very efficient when we are in focused state. And if we're not, because we're being trained a certain way, then we're in threat. And actually, you talk about this where Elon Musk claims that in order to keep pace with computers, we must merge with them. And a lot of that is because we're not as efficient as we could be. If you look at how human cognition works, it's not necessarily very fast, but it does process or have the ability to process a fairly large amount of information. 
So you've got this, well, really, it's parallel processing going on. You've got a lot of processes stacked on top of each other. And out of it comes, based on an observation of yours or a sensory input, some sort of decision to do something. A decision that can be an automated response or can be what appears to be a conscious decision, but at least some sort of decision to do something, right? All of that processing, you've actually only got so much processing power. The more of that you waste on stuff which is really irrelevant on the continuous flow of gibberish that flows out of these social media and so on, well, the less there will be actually left over for making serious decisions. This is also the reason which is really interesting that if you have to make important decisions during the day, better make them early in the day than later because you've got decision fatigue becoming more and more apparent as you get later into the day and have made many, many more decisions. And actually, this is something that can be proven. I think the best example of it has been looking at court track records of judges in the U.S. and looked at at the numbers of appeals of decisions that got overturned on decisions made early in the day versus decisions made later in the day. And you can see the pattern quite clearly there. Decisions made early in the day tend to be better. It's worth sharing also, Soren, you talk about extended mind theory or extended cognition. I thought this one was really interesting. We've handed a lot of the decision-making processes that we made with our mind over to these devices, over to technology more and more. Think of it like this. If you want to find your way from point A to point B, well, you just look up Google Maps on your phone and you say, bring me there. You've got GPS. It will give you driving directions. So you don't really actually have to think about how you get there. You just have to be able to follow directions. If you want to call somebody, their name is in your phone. So you just say, you know, call Aiden or call whoever, and the phone will dial them up. You no longer need to remember their phone number. In some ways, that's good, but in some ways, it's also bad because relegating a lot of the mental tasks that we used to do internally and putting them outside ourselves, relying on machinery to get them done, means that we get less good at doing it on our own. For instance, you know, if you look at how many phone numbers were you capable of remembering in, let's say, 1980 or 1990, before the advent of smartphones and contact lists with names in them? And the answer was most people could probably remember, you know, 20, 30 phone numbers. If you ask a smartphone user today, how many phone numbers can you remember? The answer is none. So the question you got to ask yourself here, on one hand, having this external crutch that makes it possible for you to get more information sorted and done, makes it easier for you to sort things out, makes it easier for you to find your way, makes it easier for you to understand what's around you. On one hand, it's great, but on the other hand, it's a workout that's being done by machinery and technology and AI. It's not your brain getting better at it. You're just getting better at using the technology that facilitates this. And if at some point that technology is taken away from you, you'll be in trouble. And one of the points here that I think is really interesting and I'm kind of linking to other shows that we've done on neuroplasticity or neural pruning, that whole idea of use it or lose it. It's like in the gym, you get muscle atrophy if you don't use certain muscles or they shut off. It takes a long time to actually train them to work again. It's the same with our brains. And if we're not using things like our memory or holding information or critical thinking, we're handing all these over to machines, we're going to lose those actual abilities or at least not be able to call on them very quickly. And before we explore the invasiveness of brain hacking a little deeper, we mentioned this in the intro today, let's share a few brain basics because let's bring everybody up to the same level. You mentioned the basic triune model, for example. That would be a good place to start. If you look at the triune brain model, it's not necessarily physiologically accurate what the model 
shows isn't exactly what's happening, but it's still a good way of talking about the different types of processes that's going on in your brain. So basically, this model takes your thinking and cognition, puts it into three different areas, right? You have an old area called the reptilian complex or the reptilian brain. It's responsible for very basic things like breathing, heartbeat, a lot of processes that are autonomous that you don't actually consciously interfere with. On top of that, you have a limbic system, which manages stuff like emotion, fight-flight experiences, fear, anger. And then on top of that, again, you have a newer, more well-developed system, something that's been brought in place over the last maybe 60, 70, 100,000 years, the neocortex, which is where your conscious processes are going on, where rationality takes place, where your consciousness probably has its seat. So you can think of it as having these three layers on top of each other. That is what, together, makes you you right but you can only actually consciously interfere with the top one what goes on in your neocortex the rest of it is just running on autopilot yeah and i think it's important to highlight here and it's one of the reasons i was interested in this section in the book in particular that our analog brain is not wired for digital friendships because our brain may tick the box that a connection has been made that we are friends with somebody in a digital realm but it's far from the physical truth. The reason for this has much to do with uh, hormonal triggers. Basically, when you interact with somebody in a social setting, your interaction will set off a lot of hormonal and neurotransmitter processes. And there's a lot of stuff that you read in terms of gestures, body language, that don't come across uh, digital media at all. In a sense, when you think you're ticking the box or your brain thinks it's ticking the box and need for social interaction through social media, to some extent, it's like looking at a, 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 you know, a picture of a glass of water and thinking that now you've had something to drink. That's a great way of putting it. Do you know, another thing that comes out of all this, and particularly with younger people living on social media or, or being a huge part of their lives, is social comparison. You actually got that going on, especially uh, tweens and teens on social media will very much tend to see how do I stack up against the others. And this is not so much to do with social stratification. It's got to do with individual comparisons within a peer group where you're trying to work out your standing. Unfortunately, for some users of social media, it works well for them. They get a lot of likes. Everybody thinks they're cool. For others, it leads to feelings of rejection, to lack of self-worth, to you know the feeling that you don't stack up, that you're not as good as others. And obviously, that's, psychologically speaking, not a good thing to experience. But unfortunately, this is what a fairly large percentage of younger users of social media do end up experiencing, according to the research that we've been through. And there's a great quote to highlight the issue here is children whose self-image is still being formed and who may suffer from normal transitional insecurities are vulnerable for obvious reasons. Facebook use has been shown to enhance both healthy social habits as well as exaggerate bad ones. This one's really important, that digital social pageantry has stretched beyond the social media networks to the social gaming world as well, because you're not just talking about social networks. This is not a witch hunt on social networks, nor it is on smartphones. It's just on the shift to digital socialization. And one of the places this is happening, and you talk about the brain hacks they use in gaming as well, because the whole idea there is to keep you on the platforms as long as possible. And actually, you can see a shift in the later years away from traditional social media like, say, Instagram and Facebook towards many other kinds of social connectedness via technology, often in a gaming environment or where gamification is used. And especially younger generation of uh, users are, are definitely moving away from Facebook 
and moving to some extent towards Instagram, a lot of them towards gaming with social connectivity as well. There's a pretty large shift in how different demographics are using these platforms. But regardless of what platform they're using, every offering of a service is with the same intent to get the user to stay on it for as long as possible, because that's how you make your money. If you make a game that you sell for money, you have to get the user to use it to feel that his investment in the game was worthwhile. If you make a phone, you want the guy that bought the phone to buy the next version of your phone, you have to make sure that he or she uses it enough to feel that it's worthwhile to upgrade. If you were Google or you're Facebook or another direct social media, you need people to be on long enough so that you can resell their attention to advertisers that gets to show them something on the site where they can then take your attention and see if they can bring it off-site and into their own realm, right? So there's absolutely just no way around that whole competition for attention, regardless of platform, regardless of service. It's just the way it is. It's not that these companies are evil or anything like that. It's just a mechanic of what happens when you have competition, which in really many ways is a good and healthy thing, stacked up into a digital format where you've got contenders for what's really become your consciousness and your focus and your attention as a marketplace. I'm glad you said that because this isn't a witch hunt on these platforms because, as you said, like nobody said, let's create this smartphone thing and get the whole world addicted to it. It's just an unfortunate side effect, consequence that happens out of these things. I'm all for capitalism and competition, and I think it's a good thing. If you look at the extent of poverty reduction in the world over the last 30, 40 years, it's just tremendous, and it's really great that being able to trade with each other, being able to open up more markets, have made more and more people come out of poverty and into some sort of middle-class existence. I mean, what's not to like about that? But then, obviously, at the same time, the same structures that drives much of this the same competition between things that tend to drive down prices, that tends to drive up quality, does have some issues attached to it when all of a sudden you yourself have become the product and the marketplace. I thought something there when you were talking about the social aspect of the games. If you think of a parent, a big dilemma for many parents is all my child's friends are on a social network or are using a certain game, let's say Fortnite. It's become the new water cooler moment, what happened in the game. And if I deny them the opportunity to play the game, they won't have the opportunity to talk to their friends about the game. So I'm actually taking away a common interest, kind of like sports team in a way. I'm taking that away. And if I take that away, I'm taking away an opportunity to socialize. And this becomes a major headache for many parents. It's very true. And also because there's actually less and less things available to share out there. I mean, if you think back 20, 25, 30 years, you know, people would watch TV. Most would have, you know, two, three, four, five channels, right? So there was a good chance that everybody had watched probably the same show, seen the same movie or whatever. So when actually you got to talking with somebody, you had a lot of shared frames of reference, either because you'd read the same, you'd seen the same, you'd watched the same. Then fast forward 25 years, you've got this incredibly fragmented media picture where you're getting bombarded with information from thousands and thousands of sources where all of your TV you watch is streamed to you. You, you pick titles out of a library of thousands and thousands. And even though you can say, well, you can connect 
in social media, but social media as Facebook is it's equally fragmented. It's billions of users that are doing different things and you have to navigate your own way through it or into it. So what that means is that the shared touch points we have become fewer and fewer. And obviously, you know, if you look at younger people or teens growing up and the whole socialization process, there's a really big need there for peer acceptance, for being part of a group, for feeling that kind of belonging to, you know, your own peer group. And if gaming is something that they can relate to and that they can share and that gives them something in common, it's a big dilemma for parents to say, well, hey, you know, there's some negative aspects of this. Should I take the game away from you? Risking that you somehow fall out of your peer group because now you don't have that same kind of frame of reference that you otherwise would. It's, it's a terrible dilemma. I don't know if you've seen the movie Bird Box on Netflix to our audience as well. If you haven't, this isn't a spoiler, by the way. But if you look at that movie and you look at it through the lens of a mother, which is the Sandra Bullock character, taking away social media from these children, That's what this threat, this ominous threat in the whole movie is, is this idea of social media and what it does to you. Because you mentioned the HPA access and how social media can be perceived as a social social preservation being under attack. This is important. Let's backtrack about 60 or 70,000 years, right? When people started to gain language, when the idea of humans as a social animal more and more sprung into being, you know, we started forming tribes, eventually we turned to agriculture. Well, all of this necessitated that we had systems that allowed us to communicate, that allowed us to relate to each other in groups, that allowed us to understand each other, and that allowed us to fulfill multiple different tasks in society that grew increasingly complex, right? So that is the cognitive apparatus that we have. But obviously, what has happened now is that It's under attack from just a massive investment of information in being boosted at us in in small fragments that's very hard to tackle and that very often disrupts processes that we've otherwise used a long time to build, processes of socialization, processes of peering processes of how friendships work. I mean, damn, you know, you go down to the local cafe or your coffee shop, 20 years ago, people would be sitting around talking with each other. I'd be happy to talk to a complete stranger about, you know, what's in the newspaper or the weather or just something, right? Now you go down there, you've all got their face and their smartphone. It's deathly silent. Nobody's really much talking with each other at all. And one of the things that comes out of that, that you got to remember, underneath all of these surface processes, your body is still processing it. There's a lot of hormonal and neurotransmittal signals at play here. And some of this actually tends to lead to stress when you've got that constant fragmentation. You've got that constant bombardment, increases your cortisol levels. That, in terms, can lead to stress. And over time, even things like heart problems and other health problems. Which is why we're seeing this. You know, it's one of the contributing factors to the worldwide epidemic of anxiety as well. Let's jump to motivation. And in particular, you talk about two neurochemicals, which are dopamine and oxytocin, these have a major part to play. I think in order to explain this, you need to start looking at how your way of rationalizing and thinking works, right? So if you think of yourself as having two kinds of systems running, a fast and a slow one at the same time, think of it when you learn to drive a car. Learning to drive the car was difficult, but today you understand how it works and you're capable of driving a car and having a conversation at the same time. Why is that? Because the whole process 
of driving the car has been more or less relegated to your, your autopilot, your autonomous system, or, or what's called your fast system. And this system is not, it's not reflexive. It's not rationalizing. It's not carefully thinking or argumenting or deducing. It just simply operates on a set of rules that's understood reflexes to how you should act or do in a particular system, right, or situation. The other half of you, the slow system, this is where you make your decisions, where you think about, should I take out a new mortgage or not? Should I do this or should I do that? And the processes here are slower, they're more cumbersome, they're more deliberate, and they take much more focus. Understanding the difference between these two modes of thinking is important because the game that social media deliverers are playing, the game that everybody is playing in order to get you to stay on their platform, is breaking into your fast system. Because if you can install yourself there, if you can make yourself part of something that's just an autonomous process inside your mind, you can keep triggering your audience, right? So for instance, if going on Facebook and responding to a notification and looking at a feed was something that I had to consciously think about, well, do I want to do it now? Should I or shouldn't I? Should I go look if there's notifications? Well, then you wouldn't actually be using the media all that much. But that's exactly not what's happening. You've just been conditioned to put yourself in a state where when your fast system sees a little red light blinking on your phone, you punch it and you go and you see what it is. And now you spend some time on that particular service, right? So if you cut to how what's happening at a hormonal and neurotransmitter level, usually, you know, you hear about dopamine and it's it's laid out as this kind of like sex rock and roll drug, you know, you just have some of this and you'll feel really happy and it's all great and it's a reward transmitter. Well, that's not really actually true. What dopamine is, it's an attention focuser that's seeking a reward. So think of it like this. Let's take an example with chocolate. Let's say that you have a piece of chocolate, right? It's really good. So maybe you decide to have another and it's still really good and maybe even a third pieces so it's still good but at some point after three pieces of chocolate you're thinking well i don't now i want to do something else right if you look at what happened with your dopamine levels first piece of chocolate they probably shot up a little bit you know it's kind of like oh i could do that again you want to be rewarded the next one up a little further the next one is still a trigger and then after that it starts fading you see you see exactly the same thing with gambling with slot machines it's not the reward it's the anticipation of reward this is pretty important in terms of how social media hooks are structured because what really happens is that we try to create a situation using what's known as addictive design come into a mode where you continuously almost getting something. We have an anticipation of a reward that will come. So that is why when you're looking at a little red blinking light, which is your notifications, your brain is screaming to you, you got to do that because you get rewarded for doing it. Or when you scroll through the never-ending scroll of messages in your Facebook feed, it's exactly the same thing. You think you're going to be rewarded somehow, and, and dopamine to some extent drives that process. The other stuff we're talking about here is a hormone called oxytocin. And oxytocin is associated with a lot of uh, communal social processes. It's important for the bonding of, of infants to uh, their mothers especially, but to parents uh, all told. It's also important in most other relationships. And there's studies that show that if you meet somebody and you fall in love and you have between the two, if you consistently elevated or higher oxytocin levels, well, chances are you'll stay together for a very long time. Whereas if you measure oxytocin levels shortly after people have started dating and they're not that high, chances are that they will break up pretty soon. So what you have as a real issue with that is been known as technoference. 
Technoference is when technology or social media or any other thing breaks into processes that are needed in order for socialization or families or friendships or anything else to work. So one of the best examples of this, you can observe it if you go to any playground. So you've got the kids carting around doing somersaults, being on the swings, whatever. And obviously, they're doing what kids always do. They're going like, see me, see me, see me, because that's what it's all about. It's about that recognition and being part of something with your parents. But the parents are sitting on the bench, and they've got their noses stuck into their cell phones, right? So they're not seeing little Jack doing cartwheels and and being on the swing. And because little Jack is not being seen, well, he ends up thinking that the correct way of living your life when you get older is to have your nose stuck into the phone and not pay attention to the people that are actually looking for your attention in the real world. And even worse, obviously, it is that you can measure this. You go to that playground and you take a sample or blood test of the parents that were looking at their smartphone versus the parents that were focused on their kids' behavior and what they were doing. And you will see that the oxytocin levels will overall on average be higher for the parents that were focused on their kids than for the parents that were focused on a piece of technology. You know, we talk about addictive design and I'd love to dive into what you call the land of the dragon next. But before we do, it's that piece that really we can control. We can control how we can control the technology so it doesn't control us. Jumping into the land of the dragon, and we mentioned at the start that the devices, the social media networks were never designed to be such beasts that they have become, but they are that now. And because the stakes are high, they even hire people known as attention architects. And you remind us here of the work of BJ Fogg, his work on captology and the three conditions that Fogg says must be met to capture our attention. This is important because this is the foundation of all the mind hacks and brain hacks that we're seeing. It's the foundation, not just of that, but for pretty much all online selling, which is in and of itself a gigantic market. One thing is when you look at the economy of the individual companies out there, but if you look at the total amount of goods and services being sold online. It's tremendous. It's trillions and trillions of dollars. And what has this got to do with Fogg? Well, basically, he came up with a very simple model that's proved to be really accurate. All it does is it says, if you want somebody to do something, three things have to happen. A, there has to be a way for them to do it. B, it has to be reasonably easy. And C, there has to be a trick or something that makes them do it right now. So convert that thinking into how social media addictive design is done, right? Well, A, you know, try to make an experience for the user that's easy to get into, that whatever is required of him to participate or to buy or to whatever is easy to figure out. There's not much he has to do, click a single button, and then put in some trigger something that gives him a reason to do it right now. And that trigger can be anything. It can be like, oh, you know, punch the button now and save 20%. Or, you know, do this now and get rewarded with this later. Or even your friends will love it if you do it. So actually, if you're a skilled online marketer, you, you will know that there are hundreds and hundreds of ploys out there that are all designed around building trigger points into situations where consumers at the other end have something that they want and where you've made it easy enough for them to get it. And if you can bring those three things together, you can sell cars, you can sell insurance, you can keep people on Facebook, you can sell plane tickets. There's no end to it because this is what drives everything at the end of the day in online marketing. Let's demystify that for some people who may not be a au fait with 
digital marketing and marketing. You're a chief marketing officer. You understand this inherently, but you do a great job of explaining it. And some listeners may wonder, how do Facebook and other social platforms and other platforms in general know so much about us and can target us so effectively? And you share here the work of Michael Kaczynski and how our personalities can be predicted with great accuracy using the big five traits of the OCEAN acronym. Kaczynski and, and what eventually became the Cambridge Analytica scandal is really interesting. I mean, the original work that he did was to try and figure out how much can you learn about a person by just having an idea of what they like or what have been liked about them on Facebook. So he developed a questionnaire and he managed to get a couple of million people actually to provide answers to that questionnaire. And what he discovered after taking all this data and collating it and running it up against each other was, you know, you get 100 likes of understanding on a person. You can tell a good deal about him. You can you know, tell probably something about social status. You can tell something about education level. You can maybe tell something about gender. Get 200 likes. You start knowing as much as his parents. 300 likes, you know, you know more than his partner about what he will or she will probably like, do, think, mean, have of values, and so on. So that's already kind of interesting. But underneath it, there's something else going on in terms of how this marketing works that's perhaps even more interesting because all of this data as you make your way around on the internet, on your phone, or on your browser, everything that you do is being tracked by cookies. So what sites you visit, where you visit on the individual sites, what you clicked on, what was interesting to you, and all of this information, now I'm just taking Facebook as an example, but every, everybody does it. It all gets collated. It all gets sorted out, gets turned into segments. What's known as cohort analysis is being made on those segments. And this means that you can now select target groups with a very high degree of accuracy. So if I have something that I want to sell and I want to sell it via Facebook, Facebook's online advertising engine, which advertisers use to structure their ads, not least who sees these ads, it will give me a lot of help in understanding my target audience that I'm interested in reaching um, women between the age of uh, 40 and 49 with a propensity to travel that live in one of these three states in the U.S. that are also interested in uh, vampire fiction from uh, Stephen E. Meyer, just to take an example, right? A group like that can be built, it can be identified, and it can be marketed to. And then obviously what happens is once you start marketing to that particular group, something that you believe will be of interest to them, you see how they respond, right? So you have many of these groups operating at the same time. And then you just start picking the winners, right? So the groups that you'd sorted out, probably automatically, then as you start selling your stuff, it doesn't respond. Well, you just close your marketing to those groups, stop spending money on them, where the ones that seem to be performing well, well, you augment and boost and make that group larger. And so everybody does this. So that means, this means that this type of marketing over time, it gets more and more accurate. It gets more and more able to predict what you will or will not buy. And at the same time, it also fragments the offers we see more and more. So, you know, most people will go to a service, to a social media or whatever, Google something in Google, and they will think we're all seeing the same screen picture. We're all seeing the same thing. Well, that's not true. Your web experience, to a very large extent, whether you get it on Facebook, you get it by Google or anywhere else, it's tailored to you. The cookies that are sitting in your browser, the understanding of who you are, determines what you get to see. If you want to explore this a little bit on your own, try this. Try doing a Google search on something that interests you. And then just keep the screen that you did that search on. Then open a new browser, but open it anonymously. 
So it has no cookies. Try and do the same search and see if you get the same picture. You don't. You don't get the same AdWords. Don't get the same picture. Don't get the same search results. So I think it's a great book for learning digital marketing as well, by the way, because you, you do it so clearly and you show screenshots and you show sites like Unbounce to show how you can keep people sticky and keep them coming back, etc. But let's share some of the insidious plays, the dark patterns, roach motels, privacy, zuckering, and forced continuity to name but a few, because this is things people won't be so familiar with, but you go as far as to explain these type of things. It'd be great to even share a couple of those. I would say that there's a fine line between advertising a product or a service to users based on data that you've collected that tells you that they would have an interest in it. You know, you could look at that as a positive thing, that I'm I'm trying to provide you information on products that interest you instead of giving you a lot of information and stuff that doesn't interest you. But there's a fine line between that and then when you start using ways of building up your design that's just hostile to the consumer for your own goodness. A couple of examples of that is that, you know, you have um, disguise ads, stuff that comes across as another kind of content or navigation, but really when you click, it turns out to be an ad and leads you off-site into somewhere where they try to sell you something. Or, you know, like stuff like Roach Motel, really, really typical thing. It's like when you've gotten yourself set up with service and you want to discontinue it, try and find out how you do it. I mean, like, the King Kong master of Roche Motelling is Amazon. If you set up an Amazon account, you know, you can go there right now and set up a new account just to see how this works, and you set it up. Try to see if you can figure out how you delete it again. I mean, it can be done, but <laughs> it'll take you 30 seconds to set up the account. It'll probably take you half an hour to figure out how you get rid of it again. Stuff like price comparison prevention, where basically the advertiser tries to create a situation where it becomes difficult for you to compare the price of what he or she is offering with other similar products. Because if you can't compare, it's harder for you to make an informed decision, and it maybe makes it easier for that particular advertiser to sell your stuff. Or stuff like, you know, you've seen hidden costs before. You're buying this, you're buying that, and then finally you get to the end of it. And all of a sudden, oh, here's a new line item that says there's an expedition fee that's uh, an extra two dollars. There's a service charge that's one fifty or whatever. So all of a sudden, you know, you get three and a half dollars bumped on top of whatever it was you were already ordering, but you don't realize this until you get to the very last checkout screen. And now you know you're, you're faced with a terrible decision because you know you're being had, but you spent twenty minutes figuring out what the product. It was the one you went through this whole process, reading reviews of the product, whatever, and you finally got to the point where you've made your decision. And this is when somebody introduces the extra three dollars fifty, and now you have to decide: Ha, ah, can I accept that or not? And you know what happens? Most people go like, "Okay, never mind," and they click OK, and then that's how you make an extra three fifty if you're selling. It's a sunk cost, isn't it? You're kind of going off. Well, twenty minutes is it worth three fifty? Oh yeah, sure, go on. Yeah, well, that's that's exactly it. But I don't want to buy from me again. <laughs> there are many, many of those kind of ploys. For those that are interested in this, there's actually a website out there called darkpatterns.org. It's very recommended. It gives you a very long list of these um, dark patterns and, and behaviors. And the funny thing for most of us consumers, when you go and you see a site like that and you read through that list of stuff that they've concocted, you can like, oh, okay, oh, I've seen that. I've seen that. That's true. That happened to me Thursday. Yeah, somebody tried to pull that on me Friday. But when you see the whole list brought together, that's when you start realizing how insidious this is and how manipulative it really is. One thing you mentioned there 
was making an independent decision. And you mentioned Cambridge Analytica scandal. I think it's really worth seeing. There's a great documentary on Netflix about the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which, you know, I'm pretty well versed in this and researched in it, but it shocked me how much we can influence the decision of voters, political elections, anything really. And you talk about cognitive biases and in particular the echo chamber. So for looking for diverse information, it's very, very difficult if search engines are adapted to what we search for and given us more of what we like because therefore we stay longer on the platform. I saw that Netflix film as well. And obviously I've, I've read a great deal about the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal. But you know, I actually don't think that worked because you know, here's what it is. There's a lot of research out there to tell you that information that you have about people's interest, values, affinities, purchase patterns, it makes it easier for you to sell them products and services, but it doesn't necessarily make it easier for you to persuade them that they should change their set of values or ideas. Absolutely, you can show that both the Trump campaign, the Brexit campaign, put money into Cambridge Analytica, that this money was spent building databases that use cohort analysis later to email market very large segments of the voter population with messaging that would be thought to resonate with where they were, which is, you know, fair enough. But I actually don't think it would probably work that well because the facts just are that it's much, much harder to market changes of attitude and values than it is to market specific products and services. Awareness is a huge thing to talk about. Let's look to some of the solutions because you dedicate a whole chapter towards solutions. And I love the exercise you talk about of creating life stories with the acronym FLOW. Soren, this one makes total sense. And actually, it's a good thing to do regardless of being addicted to technology or social media, etc. What the flow model really is, it's just a very simple model for framing behaviors and attitudes of your own. So think of it as working with four different components in your life. The time that you spend with your family, the leisure time you have, your own time, stuff that you want to do, and then your work time. So you can say, in essence, most people's lives are just made up of those four things, right? What can be really a good idea is to write down those four things, and then for each of them, make a short narrative about how you would like to be in that relation. Maybe your family story is, I like to spend time with my kids. If I can help them with homework, I think it's great because it's a way to get closer. I love cooking with my wife. Going to the movies together is a good thing. It it can be any sort of story, but it frames the kind of family situation that you want. You can do the same thing with the leisure time you have with your friends, how you want to be together with your friends, with your own time. If you have time for yourself, what's important to you? What do you want to get out of it? Maybe your story is, I'm interested in philosophy as much time as I have in my own hands to read. I will read philosophy because that's something I really get something out of. My point here is, Once you've put those narratives together, you can compare your narrative, your ideal you, to what you're actually doing. And when you see the difference, at least you know you get some pointers to where maybe you should change what you're doing. Because if you want to see yourself as a family guy that's helping out the kids with their homework, cooking with your wife, having good time together, going to the movies, having activities together. But the reality of the situation is that you're sitting at the dinner table with your nose stuck in the phone. You haven't got a clue what your kids are doing. And the last time you cooked with your wife was eight months ago. Well, then you know there's there's ample room for change and you've got to be thinking about doing something about it, right? This is interesting because this is the same for companies. I often think about this for purpose. So If you think of purpose of a company or a North Star for a company, it's a general direction that you want to 
aim to. And people perform better when they know what that direction is. And it's the same for ourselves. Oftentimes, many people might complain about the company not having a mission or a direction or a vision. But oftentimes, we need that in our own lives in order to perform best and to match our values with the values of the company. That's one thing that really popped out on me when I read that flow model. One of the other things I think, and a good way to the end would be, I have done this for other reasons. I looked at my life and went, okay, when, for example, I want sugar or a beer or whatever it might be, what are the triggers behind that to understand what the triggers and cues are for myself? And also for checking social media or for just zoning out in some way. To understand the triggers is really, really essential because then you can start being aware of them and then you can start detaching yourself from them and then start manipulating them yourselves. And you say that this is a key part to control your tech habits. In essence, you know, you got to use BJ Fox work against yourself. If you look at a tech habit you have, like, how often do I check my phone? Start thinking about the three things that Fox put together. How much do you want to do it? How easy is it to do? And what's the trigger? If you understand these, it's much easier to avoid. Well, you can say, I get triggered in this situation by my phone being on the desk. Right. Put it in your bag. Now it's not in the desk anymore. You took that trigger off the table, right? Well, there's a notification on my screen. It makes me go check my Facebook feed or my email. Well, great. You know, if that's a trigger, turn off notifications. Now you don't have that to worry about. Part of getting better habits in terms of how you use all of these digital opportunities is understanding exactly, as you said, what triggers you and then just taking some of those triggers off the table. In this whole process of putting together some narrative structures for yourself from flow, getting rid of triggers that are not, it's worth mentioning a psychologist called Csikszentmihalyi, a Hungarian psychologist. What he's done is he's talked about the zone. He's talked about where are people really happy. What he posits and has done a lot of research on is that what will make you really happy is when you put yourself in a situation where you're very focused on one thing that takes so much of your attention that you cannot do it if you split your attention up or if you don't stay focused on it. It doesn't really matter if that's cooking a great pasta sauce, doing downhill skiing, playing badminton, reading a book, but it's focusing on something that's just exactly hard enough to require all of your focus and to do this for an extended period of time. That will make you happy in your life. That's a lovely way to finish. And Soren, where can people find out more about your work? Because you've gone way beyond the book here and created an online platform. If you want more information, we've put together a website called humansbeforetech.com. You go there, you get an overview of the book, but not just do you get an overview of the book. There's a section that's called Learn More. And in it, there's a very long list of articles, sources, and facts about what we've been talking about here. So if you're interested to know more, this is where you can find it. Author of Offline, Free Your Mind from Smartphone and Social Media Stress, Soren Kenner, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Thanks.